Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's our ghost podcaster producer who's invisible. The ghost of Jerry's past. Yeah. Actually, the ghost of Jerry's present. Jerry's not dead, everybody. That just sounded weird. It did. We're keeping Jerry around. Yes. She's just out this week. Yeah, there you go. Um, so it's just us, Chuck. Just a couple of boys batching it. Just some good old boys. Never meaning no harm. No. Something, something been in trouble with the law since the day we were born. I, I don't think there is a something, something before then, is there? Mm, something, something, something been in trouble. Yeah, right? No? I don't know. <laughs> We'll go. We'll we'll look it up. You know, it's funny. There's a great, and we might have talked about this years ago, but there's a great website called Atlanta Time Machine, where you can go back and look at old pictures of Atlanta and mm-hmm. compare them to new pictures and all that stuff. Uh-huh. And they have some movie specific pictures uh, now, and they have the Dukes of Hazard pilot shoot photos, which was they eventually moved it out in the country, but like most of the Dukes of Hazard pilot, all those car chases were in like. Midtown Atlanta. Really? Isn't that crazy? But it was the original uh, Bo and Luke? Mm-hmm. Wow. Who was the who sang the theme song? Was it Waktosh, Waylon Jennings? Wasn't he the narrator? It was Waylon Jennings. What was that first thing you said? Waktosh. What does that mean? That's his uh, nickname. Really? Waktosh, Waylon Jennings. Yeah. I never heard that. Well, it is. I love Waylon Jennings. Yeah, he's great. Apparently, he and Johnny Cash were um, roommates. And highwaymen. Back well, way back in the day. Yeah, both of them were on drugs, but they didn't. Other people didn't know that, so uh-huh. they both used to like be on drugs, but not tell each other about it. Oh, really? And um, they I guess they came out later that mm-hmm. they they were like, "You were on drugs, and so was I." And what? He's like, "I used to keep my drugs in the air conditioner." And Johnny Cash was like, "That's why the air conditioner never worked." And Waylon Jones was like, "I used to keep mine in the TV." And Johnny Cash is. Or whoever so that's was like, the TV yeah, never worked? yeah, their TV never worked and their AC never worked because that's where they stashed their drugs without the other one knowing it. Why? What did the drugs do to the TV and the air conditioner? Uh, I got them pretty wasted. Hmm. What a weird start. Yeah, it is a little weird start, especially <laughs> because what we're talking about has nothing to do with drugs, Johnny Cash, or Waylon Jennings, or air conditioners, no. or TV, really. No. It has to do with the CIA. Yep. Submarines. The USSR. Yeah, Cold War. Yeah, and Howard Hughes. Yeah. Among other things. And Henry Kissinger. Hiss. <laughs> Are you hissing him? Hiss. <laughs> Interesting. He's still alive, too. Maybe he'll hear this. I've never seen you hiss before. I know. It's kind of threatening. Is it? Yeah. Because I do have, like, really sharp canines, don't I? Yeah, you should you should totally hiss more often. I should, and I should sharpen <laughs> these things. I should file them down. Oh, people do that. I know. Mm-hmm. But surely that has to hurt, right? To file them down? Yeah. No. How does it not? Don't you have nerves? No, they don't hit the nerves. They just... Oh, uh, I guess you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I might do that. <laughs> In the meantime, let's talk about something. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning, okay? Okay. It's 1968. I'm not yeah. exactly sure when, because look, the first part of my um, page ripped. Oh, man. Does it say when in 1968? It does. You want to guess? I feel like I'm holding the keys. May of 1968. Close. March. It was pre-Summer of Love, barely. 
Oh, yeah. Everybody's just getting started. It was the summer of foreplay. Yeah, everyone's getting lubed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> gross. So, yeah, it is gross. So um, March of 1968, in the uh, northwestern Pacific, as far as the United States is concerned, mm-hmm. um, which would be between, say, Hawaii and some far-out islands out in Alaska. Yeah, huh? and whatever else is out there. There's not a lot out there. Yeah. Apparently, re- Hawaii is the most remote island chain in the world. Did you know that? Mm, no. There's no island chain that's further away from other land than Hawaii. Even like when you look at a globe, those teeny tiny islands? Uh-huh. <laughs> from what I understand. All right, I'll buy uh, that. So say Hawaiians, at least. Yeah. Anyway, basically out in the middle of nowhere in the Northwest Pacific, mm-hmm. there was a Soviet sub. It was a uh, Golf 2, G-O-L-F 2, Soviet submarine. Yeah, they called it the Cabriolet for a little while, but... <laughs> <laughs> But that's those were the subs with the ragtop. Yeah, those didn't work out. Um, the uh, the this Golf Two sub was called the K one twenty nine. Surely it had an actual name, right? Mm, no, I think they called them the the K whatever. All right. Well, the K one twenty nine was on a routine patrol mission. These are the Soviets. They they weren't <laughs> glib about, you know. Let's call this one the, the Hannah Montana. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so the it was just the K one twenty nine. All business. Which actually is kind of reassuring because it was a nuclear submarine. Sure. Um, it had not only a nuclear missile, like a, a, a nuclear missile you could come up to the surface and shoot onto, say, the United States. Sure. It also had nuclear torpedoes. Yeah. Which I had no idea were a thing. Oh, really? A nuclear torpedo? It's kind of overkill, don't you think? No, not if you're underwater and you want to shoot a nuclear bomb at somebody. Right. Well, okay. Then that really fits the bill. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, it turns out that some of these nuclear-tipped torpedoes detonated. And I, there wasn't a full nuclear detonation, obviously. But well, a big it's blast. not obvious. But it was enough to blow a hole in the submarine and I think kick off some other detonations in some of the other nuclear torpedoes. Mm-hmm. And the upshot of all this was that the entire 98-person crew and the Soviet submarine in the middle of the Cold War in 1968 sunk about 1,600 miles or 1,500 miles northwest of Hawaii uh, and hit the bottom at 16,000 feet, more than three miles down. Yes, and so kicks off the story of Project Azorian mm-hmm. and the Glomar Explorer. Yeah. Uh, so what happens, of course, is the Soviets go looking for this thing. Uh, they spend a couple of months, pretty massive search, couldn't find it. The U.S. is kind of laughing and saying they haven't found their own sub yet. Right. Maybe we should go out there and take a look because mm-hmm. we could probably get some intel, maybe salvage a, a nuclear warhead for ourselves. Yeah. Spray paint a smiley face that says uh, something like right back at you. <laughs> That's a good one. And then throw it their way. Yeah. Uh, and in 1968, August of 1968, just you know, quite a few months later, they actually found it. The United States of America located this thing. Yeah, so they, they, this is the official story. Here's the thing that I figured out from researching this story. Mm-hmm. You can also go ahead and assume that all of this is fabricated and sure. that there's actually other stuff that was actually going on. Yeah, this is the story that's been handed like to the this, public. This actually may be the story that like covers up an assassination in... Um, Brazil or something yeah. like that. Who that knows? could be the whole reason this story exists. Because we're talking about a covert operation in the 60s and 70s by the CIA. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just 
take everything with a grain of salt. Yes. But the story as it was reported, and as far as the CIA has ever admitted, was that the Air Force and the Navy both had listening devices throughout yeah. the Pacific. And somebody at some point said, well, wait a minute, why don't we get these two together and see if there's any data, any sounds that were picked up from the sub exploding, uh-huh. and see if we can pinpoint it. Basically triangulate with only two two data points, which is, I guess, straight line-gulate. Biangulate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is what it would be called. But supposedly they did it, and they found where the sub was. And like you said, the U.S. was laughing because they were watching the Soviets look in all the wrong places. Nowhere Nowhere close. near it. Yeah. And then after a couple of months, the Soviets called off this the search, and it was quite obvious to the uh, to the Americans that the Soviets had no idea where the sub was. Which made us think, maybe we should check this thing out. Maybe we can go get it. Yeah, they, so we have two choices. We can call them and let them know where it is, mm-hmm. or we can go get it ourselves. And this is the height of the Cold War. Yeah. So they weren't about to go with choice one. No. So option two uh, came upon the table, and we got our own sub called the Halibut. So <laughs> we had fun names. Yeah. Uh, the Halibut uh, dropped a camera down there on a sled and took a bunch of pictures of this thing, uh-huh. verified it's down there, it's intact. We don't know for sure if we can go get it, but we should try because if we can get this thing, not only do we have potentially uh, information on how these warheads are being built by them, yeah. but uh, we might also be able to bust their codes with this cryptographic equipment they have down there. Mm-hmm. And so let's launch a project, and we love naming things, so let's name it Project Azorian. Yeah, I guess that's the the name of a person from the Azores, maybe? Maybe. I no idea where they come up with these names. God love them. Who knows. But um Project Azorian was the name of this 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 idea to go f- see if we can get this sub, right? Yeah, which means of course we're not going to go out there next week and start looking like there's a long process that has to be undertaken before we can even figure out if we can do this. Right. So they they actually did get together like a working group, a top secret working group of engineers and uh, nautical engineers and uh, any kind of engineer you can think of and said, how would you do this? There's a submarine, a a, a 2,500-ton submarine, 300 feet long. That's that's a thing in and of itself. It's a big sub. Like that'd be hard to pick up off land. Sure. But it's not on land. It's underwater. It's 16,500 feet under the surface of the Pacific Ocean in the middle of nowhere, about as in the middle of nowhere as you can get. And um, how could we do this? How could we possibly pick this up? And wait, 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 before you answer, you engineers, uh, the Soviets can have no idea what we're doing because they will probably sink any ship that they thought was going after this. I love this stuff more than most stuff in the world. Yeah. Like when there's this incredibly challenging, almost insurmountable insurmountable task. Right. And people get a lot of smart people together and say, let's start brainstorming on how, if this is even possible. Right. I just think it's really cool that, and I bet these people, the engineers are like, oh my God, this is a dream. Right. To come up and try and solve this problem. Plus the CIA said that they are holding my family hostage, well, so that I, too. <laughs> I better get to work. <laughs> so they decided here's what the only way we can try this is by doing this. It's going to involve three uh, large vessels. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a recovery ship that basically has a chamber with a bottom that could open and close. Like that ship in the abyss. 
Yeah. A moon pool. In fact, I bet James Cameron totally glomarred this. Totally. For his own needs. Uh, it, it would have a docking leg system that basically turned it into an underwater on the ocean floor platform. That I did not get. Uh, I think just basically it goes down there instead of like hovering in place, turns into a a, a building. But I don't understand. I didn't understand how. But yes, that's that is the understanding. Well, I had four legs. But that's crazy. That means that it had four three mile long legs. Well, that doesn't make much sense. That does. You know what I mean? I need to see a picture. I I've seen pictures of them. I still don't know what they're oh, really? talking about with the legs. Yeah. Huh. Well, I don't know then. So, but that's that's one. That's the ship that they sail out there. Okay. To, to undertake the whole mission, right? Yeah. There's two others that they have to come up with too. That's right. Capture vehicle. So that had a grabber. Right. On it. Yeah. Like the, one of those banana clips that girls used to wear in the '90s. Yeah. But for a, a 2,500-ton submarine. Yes, and it wasn't just like, hey, use a little grabber like that banana clip. It had it was specifically designed to attach to the submarine. Right. It, it was the one, like a glove. the one thing it was designed to do. That's correct. So that, that's step two. If you have one of these things and you're loading it onto a massive ship, uh-huh. I think a 700-foot ship is what they came up with, 618-foot-long ship, mm-hmm. many, many meters long. So many meters. <laughs> um, somebody's going to say, uh, what is that? Well, the Soviets would. Yes, because they're flying over the U.S. with their spy satellites ever since Sputnik got up there. Yeah. So they're going to want to know what that is. The Soviet analysts are going to point this out. So if you have this big, long ship that sticks out like a sore thumb because what are you doing with that thing? What are you also doing with this big grabber? How do you get around the grabber part at least, Chuck? <laughs> Uh, oh, the grabber? Yeah. Well, you must be talking about the barge. I am. So this is pretty amazing. Yeah. This thing had a retractable sunroof, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it, the whole reason this thing was here was to hide everything, right? Right. So it was they built the grabber vehicle, mm-hmm. the vehicle number two, inside the barge. Yes. But like you said, the barge had a sunroof. The thing about the barge was it was also designed to be submersible. Mm-hmm. So what they did was they built a barge that they built the grabber inside of, floated the barge out to this huge 618-foot ship, ship mm-hmm. number one, submerged it underneath the ship, yes. opened up the sunroof on the barge, opened up the moon pool mm-hmm. on the big ship, and raised the grabber vehicle into the 618-foot ship so that the Soviets never even knew the grabber vehicle existed. They never saw it. it. It just didn't exist. And they had to build all this stuff from scratch. Right. It wasn't just mm-hmm. like they had a grabber laying around that fit a Soviet sub. Precisely. Or this barge that could become invisible right. by all accounts. And and they – so this was – basically this is what this, this working group came up with. Like these are the things you need to do this. Yes. And the CIA said, who can we possibly get? Who in the world? Well, Howard Hughes. Yes, Mr. Howard Hughes, specifically the uh, Summa or Summa Corporation. Mm -hmm. And that was a part of the Hughes Tool Company. Mm -hmm. And they said, go build this thing at 36,000 tons, 618 feet, like you said. Right. And they called it the Hughes Glomar Explorer uh, because Global Marine was the company that operated it. And that's just an abbreviation of uh, 
Global Marine. I did not know until a couple days ago. Yeah, it's sort of a disappointing end to what Glomar meant. Yeah. Because it sounds kind of like space agey. It definitely does. Like, wow, look at the the healthy glow from radiation exposure on that thing. <laughs> Glomar. Glomar's got a great glow. And here's the other cool thing, because this would, I mean, there would still be a big behemoth ship out there in the ocean. Right. In the Pacific, and the Russians would wonder what was going on. So they said, here's the deal. There are, uh, actually, it happened to sink in an area of the Pacific where there are a lot of uh, manganese, really valuable manganese nodules underwater. Mm-hmm. So we'll just concoct this story that said Howard Hughes built this thing. You know how crazy he is. Right. Uh, to go out there and try and mine the ocean's depths to get even richer. And people actually bought that. Right. Like the press even bought it. They went to the trouble of, of saying this is actually a really good cover story because there was manganese deposits in the area. It checked out. There was... The idea of deep sea mining was very new, so there wasn't. There was the idea that this would be a good idea, mm-hmm. but no one had tried to undertake it yet. So the Soviets couldn't have been like, uh, "That's not a deep sea mining ship." No one knew what a deep sea mining ship looked like yet. Yeah. Plus, it was very Hughesian thing to it, do. Exactly. Right. He was extremely wealthy, so he had the kind of money to yeah. just undertake deep sea mining and be the first one. But he also operated in strict secrecy. And the press used to watch his operations and projects from the outside and just make guesses about it and, and, and create rumors. But it didn't matter because it was all just conjecture and rumors, right? Yeah. So um, it was a perfect cover story. And then add on to the top that Hughes was already in bed with the U.S. government in a number of ways, but including making spy satellites yeah. in highly classified top secret projects. It was it, They couldn't have come up with a better person to helm the actual carrying out of this uh, of the project. Should we take a break? Yeah. So this this took a while. Um, it was like years had passed between the sub sinking mm-hmm. and them actually saying, all right, I think we have a plan to do this and we can get this done. And by the time that came around, they said, wait a minute, like, should we even, should we go take another look at this thing? Right. Is it still intact? Should we bother? Is this still relevant? Is it an asset or is it just some rusty old, you know? hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, is it basically like a museum thing now? Yeah, so they said, and we're not into Russian museums. No. Let's be honest. Not for CIA. this kind of money. So they did form another committee. We're great at that. And they did take another look, and they said, you know what? Let's go down there, guys, because even though these missiles, the SSN-5 missiles, are no longer like their big threat, they do have the SSN-8 Maybe we could glean some technology and and how these things operate. Right. And there's still that cryptographic equipment down there, which would be a good asset for our uh, intelligence. Right. So they said, okay, let's we're going to do, do it. it. Come on, guys. Let's do it. There was another thing, too. There's this great um, IO9 uh, article on this, this very project. Um, and the author found some uh, publication of 
of memos about Project Azorian. Yeah. And one of the things was that they were saying, like, yes, it's still worth it intelligence-wise and everything, but more to the point, we're locked in the punch here. Like, the U.S. can't afford to seem wishy-washy to its contractors. That's crazy. So we need to do this regardless. Yeah, that's kind of nutty when you think about it, that the the risk of pissing off Howard Hughes, uh-huh. I guess, was too great. Right. And, I, I mean, it sort of makes sense in a way because if he was a – a big time contractor for them. Yeah, you had like to keep a, that relationship going. But yeah, there's not that many top secret contractors that you know you can yeah. trust, and yeah, you don't want to tick them off, right? Very interesting, though. Are we saying pissed off now? Sure. Is that a thing? I guess so. It made an appearance in the last episode too. <laughs> Did I say that? Just now? No, no. Uh, the uh, the the um, listener mail guy Peter. Oh. About vaping. Yeah. And he said, "I'm pissed off if you can't if you can't tell." Well, I'm not sure, but I appreciate you drawing attention to it. Well, I guess we'll find out if Jerry bleeps all this out or if we get booted out of the sixth grade classes around the world. Yeah, kids, what you should say is... Ticked off. Ticked off. And you really shouldn't say that. You should say that I'm going to use my words and let you know that what you just said bothered me. Oh, is that what you're supposed to say? Yeah. Okay. Speak like an adult. Is that how adults speak? I say pissed off. (laughs) Um, Here's the other side note, and this will come into play later is that there was another memo that said, you know what, there are bodies down there. Mm-hmm. And according to the Geneva Convention, 1949, there's a proper way that you handle even a, a quote-unquote enemy's remains. Mm-hmm. And we're going to abide by that, and we're going to take all the stuff we need to make sure that we can do that in a respectful way uh, because this will eventually probably come out, and at least maybe that will be a slight goodwill gesture right. to the Russians that say, hey, we were very respectful of the, your dead seamen. Right. So they outfitted the uh, the Hughes Glomar Explorer Explorer, <clears throat> Explorer mm-hmm. the HGE with um, I think a capacity to handle 100 bodies. Yeah, which is kind of funny if you were a sailor engineer on the Hughes Glomar Explorer, it might have made you a little nervous considering there were 98 sailors on the sub that you were going to get. So they made room for two more. Two more dead guys. <laughs> Don't think that was by accident either. Yeah. They didn't just round up to a nice even hundred cadaver coolers. They, I'm sure they're like, yeah, two people will probably die on this mission. That's right. So um, the, there's there's another memo from, I think, the uh, 1974, June 3rd, and um, it basically said, hey, all this stuff's ready. The ship's ready. The um, grabber claw uh, vehicle's ready. Mm-hmm. The barge is even ready. Everything's wow. ready. Uh-huh. Let's do this. Are we going to do it or not? They estimated a 40% chance of um, success, which they were like through the moon, over the moon about. Yeah. They were over the moon pool about this. Which is interesting. Uh, but I guess when it's something something that tough to accomplish um, and that innovative and, and bleeding edge, <laughs> nice. uh, the apparently 40% wasn't too bad. No, not at all. So, and that was like of 100% success, a 40% chance of 100% success. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, oh, yeah, sure. So they, the uh, the project is approved June 5th, 1974. And just a few days later, on June 15th, the uh, ship departed, the Hughes Glomar Explorer departed, I believe, the port of Los Angeles. Yeah. And another wrinkle that will come up a little bit later is because this was so covert, they couldn't surround it by battleships right. or have F-35 
sixteens. Well, they probably didn't have X. I don't know when the F sixteen came about. I think maybe like the sixties or something. I'm sorry to all the aviators. I'm sure we're way off, <laughs> mm-hmm. but whatever fighter jets they had at the time, um, they uh, they couldn't draw attention to themselves no. by being protected like that. It would be really weird if there was a naval or air force escort for a manganese ship. Right? Yeah, this is a pretty, uh, I want to read this. So this is pretty great. This quote from the CIA to kind of just drive it home of what a task was before them. Someone in the CIA said this. Imagine standing atop the Empire State Building with an eight-foot-wide grappling hook on a one-inch diameter steel rope. Uh Your task is to lower the hook to the street below, snag a compact car full of gold, and lift the car back to the top of the building. And on top of that... The job has to be done without anyone noticing, and that essentially describes what happened there. Right, that's what they were doing when they when they shipped out. That was the task ahead of them, right? Yes, and add to this that <laughs> it keeps getting worse. Uh, well, yeah, but the uh, the Soviets were still surveilling everything. Right. The, so remember, like they they couldn't have a U.S. Navy escort of right. a deep sea mining ship that just looked really weird. But that's not to say the Soviets didn't send their Navy out to see what was up. So for the first two weeks after uh, the Hughes-Glomar Explorer made made it to its its destination and started working, uh-huh. there were Soviet ships surveilling them basically 24 hours a day for the first 14 days. Yeah. So these guys are actually undertaking raising a Soviet sub within sight of Soviet naval ships watching them. And the Soviet, they were really nervous. At, at this point, they didn't know if the Soviet Navy was going to try to board the Glomar Explorer just to be like, what are you guys doing? You're making us nervous. Yeah. And apparently the CIA, one of the CIA officers on board was like, we need to stack some crates on our helicopter landing pad to prevent yeah. them from landing. Um, and there was a, a, I don't know exactly what alert status it was on, but it, maybe high alert, which was, there's a chance the Soviets are going to board. Uh-huh. There's sensitive materials on board. The team that's in charge of destroying those sensitive materials, you guys are on alert. The people charged with defending the team, you guys are on alert, but we're not going to give you guns yet because we haven't reached that point. <laughs> this is the, the, the tension on the But what the were ship. they supposed to do? Like karate chop? I think karate chop. Wow. It was like you can karate them, but don't shoot them. All They're right. probably going to shoot you, Yeah. but just deflect the bullets with your karate chops. So they're out on the ocean. Um, it's a very complicated mission, to mm-hmm. say the least. So you've got your ocean currents at work. Mm-hmm. You have to maintain your position through those. <laughs> That's hard enough. Then you had to lower this capture vehicle by doing this, adding 60-foot pieces of steel pipe one at a time, mm-hmm. connecting to each other, 60 feet at a time, three miles down. Right, to lower that recovery vehicle down to the sub. And then when it gets down there, it has to be just in the right position to straddle over that submarine, get that grabber out, right? attach it to the hull, yep. and then reverse that whole process by now towing a freaking submarine. Yep, by taking one 60-foot length pipe off at a time until you're raising the sub like that. You know what I need to see to understand this fully is, remember the beginning of Titanic when James Cameron did that terrible, obvious recreation of what happened to sink the Titanic. It was at the very beginning when Bill Paxton was in modern days, Mm -hmm. and they were out searching for the jewel of the sea. Uh 
and he says, well, that guy with the beard, you know, the the nerd, fat bearded guy that's in every movie yeah. to explain what's going on. Yeah. And he said, here's how the Titanic sunk. And it did the little recreation on the screen and showed exactly how it happened just so everyone would know. Uh-huh. That's what I need to see. Yeah. Oh, of this. I need a, a chubby bearded guy to explain to me visually or, that's not me. Or Ellen Page. <laughs> you want to be uh, in Inception. In, in, you want to be Inceptioned. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. The, the problem is, is there are so many holes in the story. I need a picture book. But everybody's everybody accepts that there's holes in the story because it's a covert CIA operation. Yeah. That is just will probably never fully be explained. Although there have been interviews with people who are on the ship, they could probably tell you. We'll look them up after this. Yeah, and at the very end of that whole process of bringing this thing up, then it's not like they get it up kind of close enough to the ship, and they're like, all right, it's 30 feet below us. We'll just glide in from here. Then they had to suck it on board and stow it in the docking well. Right. Successfully. Yes. Like, could you imagine getting it to where it's right below them, and then it breaks free? I'd be so nervous. And that's kind of almost what happened. That's close to what happened. So remember, the Soviet Navy is circling them. And they're lowering this claw down to the sub, but also, like, we're not doing anything over here. Just No guns. Right? So um, they reach the sub and start doing the submersible claw thing. And um, at that time, the Soviet Navy toots three times. They're like, beep, beep, beep. See you later. Mm-hmm. And they left for good. And so the, um, the uh, Glomar Explorer starts raising the sub. They get it. I have no idea how they know they've gotten it, but they've got the sub. I don't know how they directed this thing over the sub. Mm-hmm. I don't understand either. I'm totally yeah. with you. The, but as far as the story is concerned, the claw got the sub, and they started raising it. Mm-hmm. And they got it over the course of a few days, a mile up. And then all of a sudden— That's a, an extremely incredible accomplishment. I know. Imagine trying to sleep while this thing is like slowly being pulled 60 up. 60 feet at a time. Yeah, you yeah. would not. You'd not be able to. But there was a, an engineer who was on the ship uh, who later recounted in an interview that there was something that felt like about a 10-second long earthquake on the ship. And he said, you knew something bad had happened. Yeah, and this was right after he said, it's going great, everybody. We, we can't lose now. <laughs> That first mile's the trickiest. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I guess, was it an earthquake? No, it was the sub breaking up in the submersible claw. Oh, okay, I thought that caused it to break up. No, he said it felt like an earthquake. That's how big of a, 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 a an energetic release it was. So, the sub breaks apart. I guess it had been down there so long that it, uh, it just wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't viable as a single solid piece of metal anymore. Here's what I think happened based on some other stuff, like later memos. They said that they needed to redesign the claw so that it wasn't as brittle. Yeah, the banana clip. So that it wasn't as brittle and um, that it was, uh, well, so it wasn't as brittle. I think the claw broke up and and some of the sub was able to fall out some remained in, it's held into the grabber, but most of the sub, this is a 300-foot sub, um, about 260 feet of it broke off and fell back a mile down to the ocean floor. So I thought you meant that the grabber should have had, uh, like, did anybody think to put felt on this grabber? <laughs> right. Or rubber tips on the <laughs> end of the claws? No, they didn't. Oh. I know. So 
the the most of the sub, including all the stuff the CIA was after. Yeah, all the good stuff. The um the the code books, the the con tower. The They're like we have the shack. galley. Right. <laughs> they ate well. Like I guess that's okay. I love borscht, so it is a silver lining. Yeah, they only got what ten percent of this thing. Yeah. So which which it was the four of the sub the four of the subs stayed in the the grabber claw and they were able to bring it the rest of the way up and and salvage it, which included the nuclear torpedoes. Unfortunately for the CIA and everybody aboard, um, the nuclear torpedoes were of course something that had detonated, so they all suffered from some plutonium exposure as well. Yeah, so it was it was their exposure was consistent with the fact that there was. In fact, nuclear materials, right? Yeah, that they had been exposed to to these nuclear torpedoes. Nothing. The, they didn't get their hands on the nuclear missile they were after. Right. Basically, none of the prize that they were looking for, they got their hands on. But one thing they did find on their hands all of a sudden were the bodies of six Soviet submariners. Yeah. Or submariners. How do you say it? I think submariner. Okay. But we'll get taken to task and told the right way. Well, we said both, so yeah, that's true. can't get it wrong when you say it both ways. So, like we said, they could hold 100 bodies, so they could certainly hold six. And then, I guess, 94 other guys mm-hmm. on board worried. <laughs> I would guess so. <laughs> uh, uh, and they did. They they had copies of uh, Soviet burial manuals, American burial manuals. They d- had a ceremony. Did you watch the video of this? I did. Well, some of it. They they conduct. They filmed it in color. Uh-huh. And I love how you is it you who wrote this part? Yeah, yeah. I love how you put it that bizarre and inexplicably futuristic video. Yeah, it looks weird. It looks like it does look like a George Orwellian like transmission from the future. Right. But if the future was in the 1980s and it was being written in the 1920s. Right. And I, the the reason why I put my finger on it finally, it's. Men wearing matching coveralls and hard hats, mm-hmm. disposing of bodies. And the, and the video quality is just weird. Just perfectly weird, yeah. yeah. Just go check it out. The, I guess um, CIA Project Azorian Burial at Sea, I think, would probably bring it up on YouTube. And eventually this film was turned over to Boris Yeltsin. Somebody still loves you, Boris Yeltsin. In 1992 by uh, CIA Director Robert Gates at that time. Yeah. Um, Should we take another break? Yeah, I think we're going. All right. It's going well. All right, we're going to wrap up this whole mess in just a minute. So they found it once, they got part of it, right. should they go again? That was the big question, right? Um, and there was a lot of discussion. The, the CIA, for its part, was like, I don't know if there's anything left of that sub. Like it's the 70s now. <laughs> right. We lucked out that it was intact to begin with after a series of explosions. Yeah. We're pretty sure that the stuff that fell a mile back down to the seafloor probably broke up. I'm suspicious of that, but that was the CIA's position. Regardless, Kissinger and um, the rest of the Nixon administration were like, how can we do this again? The thing is, right around the same time, Nixon resigned, and all of a sudden everybody who'd been 
high flying and freewheeling and overthrowing governments and all that, we're suddenly like nothing. We're not doing anything. There's no operations going on yeah. whatsoever. So the idea of um, a second project being undertaken was pretty doubtful for a number of reasons. Yeah, and one of the other big reasons was that this whole cryptographic equipment and the codes probably weren't even relevant by that point. Yeah. And so they didn't think, I mean, they were basically like, there's so little upside to this at this point. Kissinger, I think he even finally relented, right? Yeah, I think so. Said this is not worth it. Um, what I found was uh, interesting was that a, a later interview by an admiral said, even if you found the code books and you found the communications equipment and figured out the 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 um, arrangement of like the burst transmitters and circuits and all that stuff, mm -hmm. all you'd be able to do is f break the codes for a twenty four hour period. Yeah, but that would have been the case no matter if they got in the whole sub or That's not true. Yeah. at any point. So the, and it was the, already years later when they first went down. Right. So I guess they, they you probably would it'd still be a pretty big treasure trove intelligence wise yeah. to just get a one day snapshot yeah. of Soviet submarine operations. That'd probably be worth it. But, but maybe it was more about those warheads though. I think that was definitely part of it too. But they they said mm, there's probably not a good chance we're gonna do this. The the other the other problem was this. By this time, a journalist named Seymour Hirsch, who's written some of the most um, the some of the deepest exposés on the U.S. government ever written. Yeah, he wrote about the Mylai massacre. Um, he he's he wrote um, he didn't write or he wrote a few stories on uh, the Frank Olson case that Wormwood was based on. Um, Seymour Hirsch was in that toward the end. Yeah, um, he's written he's written a bunch of stuff. He had this story down cold. He had everything for well over a year before it finally broke. And the CIA director went to Hirsch and said, don't, please don't say anything about this. Please sit on the story. Please sit on the story. And behind Hirsch's back or right from under him, the story ended up breaking in the most bizarre, suspicious way it possibly could have. Yeah. Well, and even before that, a very famous term came about because of this. There was a Rolling Stone writer named Harriet Ann Philippi and she flat out asked the CIA to reveal its existence, and that's where the phrase, we can neither confirm nor deny its existence came into play, right. which is now known as the Glomar response. Right. If you've ever heard that, that's where it comes from, Yeah. which is a great little cherry on top, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Even though this isn't the end. No, it's not. It gets even weirder, to tell you the truth. Yeah. So um, Harriet Ann Philippi was asking about Project Azorium because there is a cryptic, weird little short news blurb in the Los Angeles Times that was basically about some gossip and rumor that was circulating at the LAPD. Yeah. And among cops in L.A., there was a rumor that the Hughes Corporation had cooperated and carried out a project to retrieve a lost Soviet sub with the CIA. There weren't any other details yeah. about that. They said it was in the Atlantic Ocean. There were a lot of problems with this story. But for the first time ever, it started to see the light of day. And the whole reason that that was in there, Chuck, was in the, just the weirdest thing that's, that I think is the weirdest part of this story and the most suspicious. Yeah, the, the fact that all this came together in this way is, is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. So the Hughes Summit Corporation that we talked about, they were broken into. Their HQ was broken into in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They got cash. They got boxes of documents. 
including a memo describing this secret project to the CIA. And no one knew for sure whether or not they had this document or not. Right, the thieves. Yes, until a few months later, there was this, uh, I guess, sort of deep throat intermediary person Mm -hmm. that called up and said, hey, we have possession of a lot of these stolen papers. They didn't say we have the CIA document about Project Azorian, but they say we've got boxes full of stuff. We got binders full of women. Right. <laughs> and we'll take a half a million bucks to return this to you. Right. And so there's a couple of points that, that need to be mentioned. This is the fourth or fifth break in of a Hughes office in like the last four or five months. Yeah. And what they think. They, they think the, the Vegas mob and the St. Louis mob was involved, but they don't know who they were working for. Were they working for the government? Mm-hmm. Were they working for Howard Hughes? Um, who are they working for? But they were very clearly after some specific papers. They think what they were after was definitive evidence that Howard Hughes owned a number of high-level politicians in the United States yeah. and that they actually found it. There was a Senate report that was repressed at the last minute. So they do think that that they found evidence of just high, high corruption, um, but that they didn't know that they had this um, this CIA document in their possession until the CIA accidentally tipped them off. Yeah, so the CIA tells the FBI about this police report that the the L.A. cops supposedly have. Right. Uh, and that's being offered up for sale and for money, and it might have this uh, Project Azorian information. The FBI then tells the L.A. police about this because they didn't know uh, they didn't know about this memo. They just knew that they had this box full. They were being offered uh, to exchange this box full of documents right. for a lot of cash. They didn't know what was inside of it. Apparently, the people who had it didn't know what was inside of it. So the L.A. police told this dude who tried to broker the deal, and the CIA. That's how the CIA found out about it, right? This, I think the CIA was surveilling the LAPD, I probably as a matter of course, and found out about the LAPD being contacted. Right. Like you said, the CIA contacts the FBI, the FBI contacts the LAPD, and the LAPD says to the intermediary, hey, do you happen to have a document that shows the Hughes Corporation trying to receive retrieve a Soviet sub for like, the CIA? Just thumb through the boxes and right. let me know if you see the word Azorian. And the intermediary says, um, BRB. Yes. And the next thing you know, the L.A. Times is starting to report on it. Yeah, February 7th, 1975, L.A. Times article, U.S. reported after Russ sub, short for Russian. Sure. I guess they just had a, they wanted that big font. Right. <laughs> they couldn't get it. Get Russian in there. So, uh, according to reports circulating among local law enforcement officers, Howard Hughes had contracted with the CIA to raise a sunken Russian nuclear submarine from the Atlantic Ocean. Not true. Um, it was the Pacific. Right. And again, just a lot of holes in this. However, it was now out there. So, there's a dude named uh, Jack Anderson, I believe, who had a nationally syndicated radio show, and he was the first to really mention this thing. And he said he was going to get to the bottom of it and reveal some more stuff about it. And by this time, once he did that, all of the reporters who were sitting on stories about it, all bets were off, including Seymour Hersh. And so mysteriously, the day after Jack Anderson mentions it, there's front-page in-depth stories about Project Azorian, which they incorrectly called Project Jennifer, um, on newspapers around the country. And the, the cat was out of the bag, as they say. I'm Jack Anderson, and that's the last word. <laughs> that's good stuff. Sounds like 
that's the kind of show he would have had. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's got his fedora with scoop, like, in, <laughs> in, in the bill. Yeah, why, uh, I'm kind of curious about why Project, or why Jennifer was the name of the compartment. So this, I, I, okay, so a compartment. Sounds like some sexist thing to me, if you ask me. I think it was just maybe like a hurricane, like they just, that was up for usage. Okay. But the compartment, it's, it's the kind of like all communications, all memos, all everything that has to do with this project goes into this compartment. And somebody thought the compartment name Jennifer was the name of the project. So they messed that up. Yeah. But they got just about everything else right. And so by the time that this story comes out, the um, U.S. is like, well, it's about, the Soviets are about to unleash hell on Earth diplomatically, maybe militarily. This is going to be really bad. And the U.S. braced itself for a response. And out of Moscow, crickets. Yeah, and for very good reasons, all of which kind of tie back to embarrassment. Uh, three things mainly. They would have to admit that they lost a sub, which would be embarrassing. Yep. They would have to admit that they couldn't find it, and the U.S. could find it. Mm-hmm. Super embarrassing. Right. And then they had to admit that we we were following them out there in the ocean and saw them doing something, <laughs> but we turned around and went home. We went, beep, 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 see ya. Super, triple embarrassment. So they said, yet we're not doing it. And that, I, I, just, I think it's interesting. I've seen a bunch of stories lately about the Cold War where like where we knew something that the Soviets knew, but no one could admit it right. out loud. Yeah. So there was a lot of sitting back and like, all right, are they going to say something? Uh-huh. Are they going to say something? Right. All right, they're not saying anything. No. So despite that, despite this, this, this uh, assessment that the Soviets weren't going to publicly acknowledge this, and the United States certainly didn't publicly acknowledge it either. No. Um, Despite that, it was clear that the Soviets also weren't going to be like, sure, go ahead, try to get the rest of the sub. They were worried that if they did go back out, the Soviets would maybe sink whatever ship tried to go out there. Yeah. The Soviets had a, a military presence, a naval presence around the site the whole time from that moment on, yeah. once the story broke. Fool me once. And they said, that's it, it's, yeah. it's done. So for all we know... They went back and managed to sneak it out from under the Soviets. Who knows? For all we know, this never happened, and that all of this is actually a cover story for that break-in of the Hughes Corporation. That's what I think. Yeah. Or for all we know, this is all gospel truth. I don't know. Maybe it's sitting next to a spaceship in Area 51. Right. Deep within the Earth in a bunker. It very well could be, Chuck. Don't be so naive. Uh, In the end, in today's money, it cost about $3 bucks. And here's the kind of fun ending. Is that Glomar Explorer? Remember the barge? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was eventually retrofitted to be a regular deep sea drilling barge. No, the whole the whole ship. Oh, I thought just the barge was. No, the whole ship was. So it was finally sold only eight years ago mm-hmm. to a private company for fifteen million bucks. Yeah, I think for scrap. Oh, the secrets therein. I know. Can you believe it? But they actually finally did do deep sea mining, and then get this. Howard Hughes got a free deep-sea mining ship out of it because hmm. the government paid him to build it. That guy. That guy. Well, if you want to know more about Project Azorian, um, you should probably go back in time and join the CIA. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Oh, and shout-out to the great io9 article, uh, That Time the CIA and Howard Hughes Tried to Steal a Soviet Submarine by Mark Strauss. That was a great source. So, too, was Seymour Hersh's 1975 New York Times article on the whole thing. 
where he mistakenly calls it Project Jennifer. Wah, wah. And uh, there are a bunch of other sources, too. And we'll go ahead and shout out Pinto Madness again. Why not? Because why not? All right, listener mail? Yeah. I'm going to call this a really great thing that you should think about throwing a few bucks to. Uh, hey, guys, want to preface this by saying I'm not looking for a shout out. It's always a good way to get a shout out. Yeah. Uh, I run a charity trivia night every year in honor of my late wife that passed away from brain cancer a few days after we got married in the hospital. Uh, the event uh, the event benefits Grace Giving, a 501c3 we started for brain cancer research donations, mainly for our trivia event. We created the event three years ago, and now in year three, we sold out our 300-person event in roughly three minutes. That's awesome. With 170 people on the wait list. So I just want to publicize this event. Um, that's me talking, Chuck. <laughs> uh, I should do it in voices. Yeah. That way people would know. Do this guy's voice like really high pitched. No, I'm not going to do that to Mike. Uh, Mike's a really good guy. We've been emailing back and forth. So it is April 14th this year in Chicago. And. Uh, Are tickets, can you even get tickets to this thing? Well, I think it's sold out, but oh, I did oh, say. Oh, you can donate, huh? Yeah, I did say, can people at least donate? Because this is such a great thing. And even if you've got like $5, it's uh, what this family's been through and what they're doing now is pretty amazing. So uh, I want to say thanks for helping me out these last few years. Love the podcast. Really enjoyed the PR live show uh, that you put out, by the way. And, by the way, my roommate uh, roommate is Emmett Cleary, the football player who wrote in about CTE. Oh, wow. Remember that? Man, alive. So, wait. These two roommates have both made Stuff You Should Know listener mails. Yeah. That's really something. That's How about a, that? That's some sort of trifecta. So, if you have it in your heart to throw a few bucks toward grace giving, uh, we can encourage you to do so. You can go to facebook.com slash gracegiving24. Great. Uh, or just go, you know, Google that stuff on the internet. Uh, and that is from Grace and Mike. Thanks a lot, guys. That's very, that's, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Yeah, keep it going there in Chicago. Yep. Uh, and if you want to let us know about something great that we would want to publicize, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at SYSK Podcast. I'm at Josh M. Clark. Chuck's at Movie Crush. Um, we're on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. And Chuck's on Facebook.com slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Uh, you can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 